Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to share with you some excerpts from our new issue, Change and the Changeless, and I'll begin with J.M. White's essay, The Esoteric Shakespeare. Esoteric knowledge in Shakespeare's day was in full bloom. This was a result of the Renaissance in Italy, which brought to light a great body of knowledge that had an immediate impact on the literary currents of Europe. Neoplatonic, Rosicrucian, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and alchemical esotericism had currency in Shakespeare's time in London. Two great Renaissance thinkers of the day, Giordano Bruno and John Dee, were both living in London. Bruno was in exile from Italy, and Dee, who had one of the largest libraries of esoteric works in his day, was an advisor to the Queen. Both had immense influence in the London of the 1580s, just when Shakespeare was making his name. These ideas came to London like the rising of a new sun. They represented a completely new spirituality that signaled an alternative to the confines of the Catholic Church and the extremes of the Reformation. Renaissance Neoplatonism was infused with ideas from the Jewish mysticism of Kabbalah, along with hermetic wisdom from Egypt. These ideas fascinated the intelligentsia. Shakespeare was aware of these esoteric ideas, and they appear in his plays. Love's Labor's Lost, first performed in 1597, is in part a reaction to some of Giordano Bruno's ideas. Bruno's book, The Heroic Frenzies, published in 1585, portrayed love as a mystical state that was literally the presence of the divine. Love for Bruno was the prima materia, the basic energy of the universe that powered the sun and filled the empty space. It was the vital substance, the ground from which all things sprang. Bruno called love the magnetic, innocent, amoral, primordial nature inherent in all things. The character Baron in Love's Labor's Lost was modeled on Bruno. Baron gives a speech about the divinity of love that echoes Bruno's ideas. Love, first learned in a lady's eyes, lives not alone, immured in the brain, but with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power. And when love speaks, the voice of all the gods makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. In Love's Labor's Lost, the three principal characters are lords in the court of the King of Navarre. The three lords plan to withdraw from society for three years and dedicate themselves to the pursuit of wisdom. To do so, they must abstain from contact with women and vow to pursue only knowledge. They agree to practice austerities, to be remote from all the pleasures of the world. The only contact they are to have with the outside world is to visit and comfort the sick. Their only ambition is to escape the business of life and cultivate selflessness in solitude. However, this plan denies the feminine that is the very embodiment of love. Shakespeare's plot echoes Bruno's ideas that without love, scholarship is a barren wasteland. Bruno's influence is also felt in Troilus and Cressida when Ulysses gives his speech about the order of the cosmos and how it relates to the social order of society and the psychological makeup of each person. The most basic principle of Egyptian esotericism, taken from the emerald tablets of Hermes Trismegistus, states, as above, so below. This principle, expounded by Bruno, was the founding tenet of Renaissance astrology, which saw the heavens as a macrocosm that determined the destiny of the nations of Earth and of people individually. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place 
in fixture, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom, in all line of order. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Reading Shakespeare is an awakening to a sensibility that sees into an inner self that encompasses the broadest horizon of human experience. Shakespeare did not have the textual source material about Buddhism or Hinduism or the teachings of Gurdjieff, but he did have the vision to see into the human psyche. Shakespeare expressed many of the esoteric ideas found in these traditions in his own way. When Gurdjieff came to Paris and started his institute, he inscribed a series of aphorisms on the walls of the study hall. One of these was the phrase, remember yourself always and everywhere. This was formulated in a series of exercises which started with the phrase, first and last self-observation and non-identification. This same idea appears in Love's Labor's Lost when Baron talks about the slow arts of education that keep the brain. He then calls for a different form of mentality that, with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power and gives to every power a double power. Above their functions and their offices, it adds a precious seeing to the eye. Here is another level of mentation, a doubling of awareness, a precious seeing that opens a heightened realization that he understands but had little language to describe. This is a mental leap into an awareness more sublime than our ordinary ways of thinking. The next idea that drives much of esoteric thinking is that the ego is an automated, habituated set of behavioral patterns that have been learned unconsciously, first in the culture in which we find ourselves, then in the historical situations surrounding our life, in the language we speak, in our family, our education, etc., this is mirrored in Shakespeare's idea that we are all actors on the stage, that we have learned our roles, and in each situation we take our cues and say our lines. Shakespeare expressed this in a number of different ways. In The Merchant of Venice, he writes, I hold the world but as the world, a stage where every man must play a part. In As You Like It, he writes, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. And in a famous passage in Macbeth, he writes, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The practice of self-observation and non-identification shifts the focus of awareness from our individual opinions and prejudices to the basic human nature that is inherent in each person. This is an awakening to another level of self-realization, of self-reflection, of self-observation. This heightened self-awareness knows that it knows and does so from a disinterested point of view. The relationship of the individual sense of self to basic human nature is often compared to a single drop of rain falling into the ocean. Shakespeare used this metaphor in the Comedy of Errors, where he writes, I to the world am like a drop of water, that in the ocean seeks another drip, who falling there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. Shifting the focus of attention to the basic human nature inherent in each of us reveals a place in each person where all humans are alike. Those who experience this can accept others without prejudice, non-judgmentally, in this type of self-awareness, all that has been hidden, repressed, and concealed in our personal history can be revealed without guilt or shame as something human, all too human. 
It is a function of art to reveal the secrets of the heart with confidence and fidelity as revelation in which all beings participate. Creativity is not expressing something new, but rather an expression of something so common that it touches each person, so universal that it cannot be ignored. Shakespeare took the basic building blocks of identity and played with them. He knows the debt we owe to fortune, to occasion, to circumstance. There is a process happening, and what we take as identity is but a momentary expression of the self with no inherency outside this process. We cling to our identity and sink to hold it steady against the currents of change, but each of us is caught in a radical immersion in impermanence. This is expressed in The Tempest in some of Shakespeare's most famous lines. The great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. When the center of gravity to the self moves from the individual to basic human nature, the idea of revenge loses its importance and is replaced with a sense of reconciliation, tolerance, and acceptance. This idea is one of the central tenets of esotericism. It's expressed in the famous maxim of the Buddha, hatred is never overcome by hatred, only by love. In The Tempest, the last of all the plays, the idea of revenge is replaced with forgiveness, mercy, and reconciliation. In The Tempest, the main character, Prospero, brings together all the people who plotted against him, and rather than acting out revenge, he forgives and seeks understanding. Prospero says, the rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. This is Shakespeare's highest moral achievement and a display of his self-mastery. This is self-observation and non-identification of the highest order. Shakespeare provides an initiation into the presence of mind, the higher intelligence that overcomes possessiveness, jealousy, and revenge. One purpose of art is to provide a vision that reveals the beauty and harmony of our world. We typically make a distinction between art and reality. We think of art as the shadow of reality, but instead, art is the shadow of beauty, which is experienced as a harmonic resonance with the whole. Art is not just a copy of reality like a still-life painting. The material objects portrayed in a painting, in a sculpture, in a play, in a work of literature, are transient, caught in a wheel of birth, growth, decay, and death, in a constant process of transformation. It is impossible to view the whole. We are strictly perspectival and can see only from the point of view of our place in the world. Wholeness eludes us. Art creates a sense of the wholeness that we know must exist, but which is beyond our powers of perception. Shakespeare's art is an intimation of this unity. In his art, we take upon the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. Let's look now at one of the epicycles from the change and the changeless issue, the Chinese fairy tale, Madame Whitesnake. In the time of the Southern Song Dynasty, two snake spirits lived in a beautiful lake. Whitesnake and her friend Greensnake spent their time in meditation and learning Tai Chi. Eventually, they gained enough spiritual mastery to be able to change their forms. 
White Snake and Green Snake were enamored of the human world they had glimpsed from their lake, so they turned themselves into young women and set off to explore it. Soon after leaving the lake, they met a young man named Zhu Zhan. Being kind and pure of heart, Zhu Zhan offered help to the two women as they adjusted to life in the human world. Eventually, Zhu Zhan and White Snake fell in love and got married. But a monk named Fahai observed their wedding, and he saw that White Snake was not truly a mortal woman, but a spirit in disguise. Fahai believed that their union was immoral, and he vowed to separate Shushan from White Snake however he could. First, he approached Shushan to tell him that his wife was not truly the innocent young woman that she seemed to be. But even when her true nature was revealed, Shushan remained steadfast in his love for White Snake and refused to leave her. Next, Fahai kidnapped Shushan and trapped him in a monastery. White Snake tried everything she could think of to free her husband, but nothing worked. She turned to her friend Green Snake, who had an idea. They could use their powers to flood the monastery, enter it as snakes in the water, and rescue Zhuzhan that way. White Snake praised her friend's wisdom, and together they executed the plan perfectly. Zhuzhan and White Snake were reunited just long enough to have a child together. However, Fahai then found them again, and this time he kidnapped White Snake and locked her in a pagoda, securing her inside with magic. Zhuzhan and Green Snake worked together for years to free her, but to no avail. Always loyal to his imprisoned wife, Zhuzhan devoted his life to raising their child. That child excelled in his studies and eventually became China's foremost scholar. He traveled to the pagoda that held the mother he had never seen, and he paid his respects to her and told her he hoped she was proud of his accomplishments. The child's act of love and filial piety broke the pagoda's spell, and White Snake was freed. She emerged from the pagoda looking just the same as the day she left the lake. She embraced her child, weeping with joy. And when White Snake returned home to Zhuzhan, whose body was greatly changed with age, they loved each other more than ever. Finally, we'll look at one more epicycle from this change and the changeless issue, also dealing with the concept of shape-shifting lovers. This is the Scottish tale, Tamlin. Janet, the only child of a Scottish laird, spends her days wandering in the wild forests of Carterhaw. There, she meets a beautiful, mystical young man named Tam Lin, and before long, Janet becomes pregnant. When Janet goes to her father with the news, he does not shame or berate her. Instead, he asks which of his men is responsible for the child. She replies that her lover was not a mortal man at all, but one of the fairies who haunt the woods. Her father advises her to seek out the local wise woman who will be able to help her find an abortive herb. On her way to the wise woman, Janet meets Tamlin again. She tells him about her pregnancy and how she despairs of being able to raise a half-fairy child. Tamlin responds that he is not actually one of the fairies, but their prisoner. He was once immortal, but was captured by the fairy queen because she so admired his beauty. Is there any way that I can free you? Janet asks. There is. Tamlin replies, that very night is All Hallows' Eve, and the fairy court will go out in their annual ride through the forest. I will ride on a milk-white horse at the fairy queen's right hand, he tells her. Pull me down from the horse and hold on to me tightly, no matter what happens. 
The fairy queen will turn me into all manner of things to try to frighten you. But don't let go until she turns me into a burning coal. Then throw me into water and I will become a mortal man once more. Remember who I am and that I love you and our child. Janet hides herself at the side of the road that night. And just as Tamlin told her, at midnight the fairies come riding by. At first Janet is overwhelmed by their radiant beauty, but just in time she grabs Tamlin and pulls him off his horse. Full of rage, the fairy queen turns back toward the young couple. Tamlin belongs to me, she cries, but Janet refuses to let him go. The queen turns Tamlin into a lion in Janet's arms. She only embraces the fearsome beast more tightly. Tamlin becomes a bear, a snake, and even a dragon, but Janet knows that the gentle soul who fathered her child would never hurt her, and she keeps holding on through every form he takes. Finally, with a scream of frustration, the fairy queen turns Tamlin into a burning coal. Janet hurls him at once into a nearby well. As the coal hits the water, it creates a gush of hissing steam, and when the steam clears, it reveals a naked young man huddling at the well's edge. Janet runs to Tamlin and covers him with her family's tartan. You have lost him, she shouts to the queen. The fairy queen shakes with anger, but she acknowledges defeat. I was a fool, she says, to change his outer form when he already loved you. I should have changed the heart in his breast to wood. this month's podcast has come to an end, but please remember that you can visit us at parabola.org to subscribe, make a tax-deductible donation, or purchase one of our back issues. And you can also join us on our lively social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our final thought for today comes from Rilke in his Letters to a Young Poet, who said, Therefore, dear sir, love your solitude and try to sing out with the pain it causes you. For those who are near you are far away, and this shows that the space around you is beginning to grow vast. Be happy about your growth, in which, of course, you can't take anyone with you, and be gentle with those who stay behind. Be confident and calm in front of them, and don't torment them with your doubts, and don't frighten them with your faith or joy, which they wouldn't be able to comprehend. Seek out some simple and true feeling of what you have in common with them, which doesn't necessarily have to alter when you yourself change again and again. When you see them, love life in a form that is not your own, and be indulgent towards those who are growing old, who are afraid of the aloneness that you trust. And don't expect any understanding, but believe in a love that is being stored up for you like an inheritance. And have faith that in this love there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside it. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.